I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, a podcast about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the people and politics and traditions of the 87th Texas legislature. This week, not throwing away our shot. Tell me if this sounds familiar. On the day several weeks ago that I got my first dose of the coronavirus vaccine, I got emotional. I'd driven a pretty good distance to a county that to the best of my knowledge, I'd never been to before and was sitting in my car in a drive-through line under a tent back behind a hospital. Like so many of you, I tried to get an appointment closer to home, but couldn't. So happily took to the road as a vaccine tourist. Don't worry, I made sure to patronize local businesses on the way in and out of town. After filling out my paperwork, I was approached by a cheerful nurse one of the many true heroes of our time in purgatory, who matter-of-factly asked me to roll up my sleeve a bit higher and then stuck me. It was weirdly anticlimactic. I don't know that I ever even felt it, and it took only a few seconds. And yet my eyes welled up. Relief. Elation. Involuntarily, I exhaled as deeply as I ever have. The stress and anxiety and near insanity of the last 13 months all finally draining from my body. I thank the nurse profusely, not just for what she did for me, but what she and others like her were doing for everyone. This is an odd moment. The end of the pandemic is near. It's most definitely not here yet, but there are signs that we'll soon be able to return to something that vaguely resembles normal. In the last week, we've seen the percentage of Texans who are fully vaccinated tick up to just over 22%, nowhere close to herd immunity, despite what Governor Abbott intimated on Fox News last weekend, and still behind the national average, and still 45th out of the 50 states. But we're getting better every day. As of this weekend, the raw number of us who've responded to a call to arms, get it, is 6.4 million. We've got to keep it going. We've got to convince as many people as possible of the vaccine's benefit to them and to the rest of us. We have to address racial, economic, and geographic disparities in access. We have to put politics to the side and sync up the feds, the state, and local officials as they work to realize their shared goal of more needles than need. And we have to do it quickly. There are variants to outrun, schools and businesses and offices to reopen, and an economy poised to come back. My guest this week plus ones all of this. Imelda Garcia is Associate Commissioner of Laboratory and Infectious Disease Services at the Department of State Health Services, and she chairs the state's COVID-19 Expert Vaccine Allocation Panel. She understands that the stakes are high, that the pressure is on, and that impatience is a virtue. As she told me when we sat down to talk on the afternoon of Monday, April 19th, day 98 of the 140. Point of Order is supported by Humana, a health and well-being company. Better health is at the core of what they do. And by the Texas Hospital Association, Hospitals have been central in our fight against COVID-19, and THA is working hard 
to expand much needed healthcare coverage for all Texans. And the Texas Association of Nurse Anesthetists. As the AG's office recently affirmed, supervision is not required for certified registered nurse anesthetists. CRNAs continue to provide high quality, patient-focused anesthesia care. Learn more at txana.org. And CVS Health. Throughout the pandemic, CVS Health has been there, now providing the vaccine in designated states and long-term care facilities. For more information, visit cvshealth.com. And Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Proud to support this conversation because public dialogue and civic engagement are important and play a role in improving the health of Texans. So if there's anything we've learned over the last few months, it's that everybody has a vaccine story. Tell me your vaccine story. When did you get one? Where'd you get it? Which one did you get? What was it like for you? So mine was Moderna and uh, received it at work. Um, I was one that, um, you know, working late hours and they had some, uh, an extra dose left over um, and I was working. And so the nurse was like, you know, I need to administer it. And so, um, or else it's gonna expire and it was pretty late. Um, I was pretty adamant that they needed to go find somebody else. Um, yeah. And then they said, we can't find anybody. We went through the whole building. It's already, you know, seven o'clock at night. And um, so that's how I got my first one. And, you know, the first dose, no problem whatsoever. The yeah. second dose, you know, definitely felt it the next day. Well, that's been the story for a lot of people, hasn't it? I mean, people, I think in particular with the Moderna, although I don't know that there's any one answer on this here. I've, I've known some people who've gotten second Moderna doses and have gotten a little bit sick for a couple of days. But in the end, whatever it takes, it's about the end result. And the end result is you're vaccinated and, and that's it, right? You're willing to put up with whatever, whatever the consequences are. No, absolutely. Yeah. Do you have any ambivalence about getting vaccinated? You know that there are a ton of people, we'll talk about this in a while, who still seem unsure of whether this is a good idea. You know, I think that asking the questions and, um, you know, being thoughtful about the process is important. Um, you should have questions. And I think that gives us the opportunity to have them reach out and talk to someone that they know and trust. Um, what we've learned um, throughout the pandemic and what we've learned, you know, throughout our vaccination efforts, um, all healthcare is personal. But when we're in the throes of the pandemic and what you do may help your neighbors and other things, you want to hear about it from your own doctor, your own friends, your own clergy. Um, you know, just hearing what the mainstream may say may not be enough. And so it's okay for you to have questions. We want you to talk about it. We want to, you know, have those questions answered and make the right decision for you. Yeah. I mean, I guess at a moment like just about a week ago when the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was paused, it probably gives the people who are hesitant about this reason to think, yeah, I had a right to be hesitant about this. You know, this is something that's still relatively speaking new. We don't have all the kinks worked out. There may be a benefit to it. Um, but that's a moment where maybe being hesitant is not a bad idea, right? So the Johnson & Johnson pause 
really demonstrates that the safety system works. At the end of the day, you know, the, the data that is being submitted and the, um, you know, adverse events that are reported through VAERS, the normal uh, national system, it really proves that it works. You know, signals, um, red flags have been, you know, uh, seen. The advisory committee and um, both the CDC and CDC saw it and they wanted to review the data, really see what's going on. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, they made the recommendation to pause. Now, the pause was important because for the, the rare blood types, uh, blood clots that they were seeing are different than what, you know, normal blood clots, um, how doctors handle those things. And so it was important for us to make sure that providers are educated yep. about how to handle that particular one. Um, it also gave the advisory committee time to pull more data. You know, they specifically delayed the next meeting to allow another week to see if, you know, there are any additional cases that may come to the forefront. Um, and so, you know, in my mind, it really just signals that the regulators that are handling this take this exceptionally seriously. And if they see something of concern that is out of line with everything else that they've seen, that they will pause it. Yeah. And, you know, rightfully so. Uh, people complained that maybe the number of cases that were cited as the cause for the pause was so small that it was an overreaction. What do you think about that? I think that because of the type of um, blood clot that they were seeing, again, it was because you have to treat it differently. And so with that, you know, physicians and clinicians have a lot of years of training on how to handle things. But because it was rare, they thought that it was important for us to make sure that people knew how to handle it appropriately. Yeah. And so yeah. I think that, you know, they use prudent judgment. I heard Dr. Fauci say on the Sunday shows uh, this weekend that, it, that the feds are, are very likely to lift the pause by Friday. At least he held out the real possibility that would happen. If that happens and the pause is lifted, will the state resume administering J&J? Yes. If the pause is lifted, we will be following the guidance of FDA and CDC. Got it. As a practical matter, what did a week off from Johnson & Johnson do to our progress at getting people vaccinated? I've heard you talk a little bit about this, but I want you to get down in the weeds with us. Tell us what it did sure. as a practical matter. So practically, we knew that we were going to get less J&J &J through the end of April anyway. You know, Why CDC had just told us that because of the manufacturing um, plant in Baltimore, that um, we were going to get, I think, um, 15,000 doses a week for the remainder of April until that new plant was approved and when we would actually see a larger increase um, typically in May. So as far as the amount of vaccine that's actually in the state right now, I don't know that it had a, a big um, impact on, on how quickly you know, we were able to do that. A significantly lower percentage, Commissioner, the J&J &J was a significantly lower percentage of the overall number of vaccine doses being administered than, say, yes. Pfizer and Moderna, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, absolutely. And so, you know, we, we had lower doses um, to be expected. Um, we know that our providers are still trying to go as quickly as possible. Now, for the ones that did slow down may have been the ones that only had the J&J &J vaccine. Um, and so they may not have other options to vaccinate people. But, you know, in particular for some of our larger providers, we did have quite a few providers that had a mix of you know Pfizer and J and J or Moderna and J and J and so they you know just flipped over to the other uh, brand of vaccine, 
And then with this additional week that's occurred, it's allowed providers to place orders for a different vaccine that we'll be allocating um, for next week as well. Right, now I've heard you say this week in the run-up uh, uh, to, to today, that Texas was allocating 700,000 first doses of Pfizer and Moderna vaccines this coming week. Is that right? You had yes, cited sir. that number. And that federal doses being sent to pharmacies and mass vaccination sites would take the total coming to us up to more than a million, right? Yes. So how to ex explain to, the, to a novice how this works. So Texas allocates and the feds allocate? How does that work exactly? How are those allocations different? So we have two um, ways that vaccine comes in directly. And then um, we also have another third uh, avenue as well. And so the first two are, we get a direct state allocation from CDC and they tell us, Texas, you have X amount of Pfizer doses, you have X amount of Moderna and you get X amount of, of the Johnson & Johnson. And then um, we get those doses and then we push them out to the providers that are enrolled with us. But the feds also have additional programs that they are directly allocating to uh, special providers. So they instituted a retail pharmacy program mm -hmm. and um, those pharmacies that competed and were selected to be part of that program uh, get to order their vaccine directly from CDC on a weekly basis, and they get vaccine that's um, allocated to them on top of the doses that is allocated to the state. So we have the retail pharmacy program. We have um, new vaccine allocations that are going to federally qualified health centers all across the state as well. And most recently, um, our federal partners have added the dialysis centers as well to begin receiving their own direct allocations on top of that. So those are the two main programs that send vaccine to Texas. But we also know that more vaccine is in Texas through um, the Department of Defense. So, you know, Texas has a very large military footprint. Right. Uh, the Veterans Administration receives their own vaccine allocations on top of that. The Federal Bureau of Prisons and the Indian Health Service all get their own vaccine that's, again, on top of the state allocations. So, so take that number up. So if it's between the state allocation and the federal allocation, just over a million, when you add in those additional sources, what are we looking at ballpark in a given week? So unfortunately, I don't have full visibility on the Department of Defense, VA, and uh, those other pieces of okay. it. But we know that it's well over one million just okay. given what our allocation is. You feel good or not good about that number? I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about where we are right now. Obviously, Texas is a very large state. We have a lot of need. Even if you assume that some percentage of people are not that interested in getting the vaccine or if people under 16 are accepted from this, um, it's a lot of people we have, to, we have to give this vaccine to. Is that a good number or a bad number relative to where you think we ought to be or would like to be right now? So I think it's a good number for us where we are right now. You know, we have um, providers that are actively wanting vaccine and we've been able to allocate to them um, in order to ensure more access points. I think having the federal program is a help to us, you know, so that we have more and more easy access points through the retail pharmacy program. Um, and we try to make sure that when we do our allocations, that we're really expanding access and not all allocating to the same you know, providers and, and limiting the number of access points. So 
at the end of the day, you know, I, I always want more vaccine coming to the state. But yeah. as far as where we are right now, I think it's a good amount and we look forward to getting um, additional vaccines. Um, I'm watching the numbers tick back up a little bit. You know, we track the numbers every day on our site. Others track the numbers and what we're seeing are confirmed cases, new confirmed cases are sl slightly up. Hospitalizations are slightly up. Does this concern you that we're beginning to see a little bit of a reversal of the progress we've made over the last couple of weeks? So we watch the data very, very closely. Um, and every morning that's how our day starts off with the new case um, counts and hospitalizations and deaths. And it, you know, one thing that we do know is that we saw, saw a sharp decline. Um, things seem to have plateaued out a bit, um, have yeah. been fairly stable. Um, you know, we've seen some increases here. It, you know, ultimately, you know, one or two days is not a, a major concern because just reporting, you know, patterns uh, may be part of that cause. But it's something that we're going to watch over the next week, um, yeah. two weeks, and really see if the trend truly is going in that upward direction. So that's the time frame. So we really should judge this not on the basis of a couple of days, but we need a week, say. And if after a week you see those numbers continuing to go back up, then that probably is real. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, one data point isn't, uh, it may signal something, but it doesn't really tell you the full direction. It's the trends yeah. over time that tell you the direction that you're going in and where you need to make course corrections. How worried are you about the variants? I, I've read a lot about it and heard a lot about it in other parts of the country, the variants causing numbers to spike, whether it's in Massachusetts. We've heard, uh, uh, you know, those numbers go up. Michigan apparently has been a focus of people's attention. It seems like so far the variants have not posed a problem for us yet. I hate to say it out loud because I'm worried I'll jinx it. But Please you're the expert. <laughs> yeah, you're the expert. Tell me how worried you are about the variants. So I am worried about the variants, and I think that this is part of the reason why we've been pushing so hard to vaccinate, you know, so many people so quickly. Yeah. Um, you know, we are in a race against the virus. The longer that the virus is in the community, the more opportunities it has to continue to evolve. And you know, if the variants um, create resistance so that our vaccines don't work or that our therapeutics don't work, you know, that is something of concern. And so that's part of the reason why we're pushing so hard. Yeah, but nothing that you've seen so far tells you that the variants are, are kind of galloping toward us in a way that we can't deal with, at least right now. Correct. Not right now. Yeah. Yeah. This virus is something, isn't it, Commissioner? I mean, I, I think about your history. You've worked on HIV. You've worked on Ebola. You've worked on Zika. There really wasn't any preparation for this, right? No playbook. None of those necessarily translate into a strategy for this naturally. So I think you take lessons learned from all pieces of those and you build your toolbox over time. Um, you know, we did have the H1N1 pandemic um, yep. that, you know, we took a lot of lessons learned, particularly on the vaccine efforts um, from those early days. Now, obviously it did not have the kind of severe societal impact that we've all experienced with COVID-19. And so that is a very dramatic change. But the principles that we've learned, you know, in public health interventions and communication, all of those things still really are paramount that you can take with you. You may need to tweak them along the way, but um, those same kind of core foundational steps are important, regardless of what disease you're talking about. If I had told you a year ago, as we're sitting here today, so April the 19th of 2020, that we would be where we are a year later, the number of deaths, the number of people infected, and the damage visited upon all aspects of our lives, differences in the way we work and live, the 
effect on the economy. Would you have believed it? Did you see it over the rise back then? I think, you know, April of last year, we were more hopeful that things um, would be, you know, phasing out. I think the, um, the prolonged effects that we've seen, you know, in April, we didn't hit our peak yet on hospitalizations. And right. so, you know, things we seem to be managing, you know, okay, we watched, you know, what was happening in some of the other states, but, you know, things were different here. Um, you know, later in the summer was when we really hit our peak as far as hospitalizations and, you know, cases and things like that. And yet, even then, we didn't know, you know, that we would hit an even higher peak, you know, after the, the winter holidays. And so, um, you know, you couldn't have predicted then if you thought that you were stressed, the hospital system was stressed there, you know, because of the lack of PPE. Um, it's hard to predict the future. Yeah. Even if you've worked on these incredible things, again, like Ebola and Zika, you just don't know because every one of these is going to take its own course, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, let me come back to the, uh, the degree to which we vaccinated people in the state as of right now. Half of U.S. adults, according to what I've been reading this weekend, have now received at least one dose of the vaccine. The numbers in Texas are lower, about 45%, according to your website uh, this, this morning. I, I looked it up. Um, comparably, 32.5% uh, roughly of adults in the country are fully vaccinated. It's roughly 28.5%, even closer to 29% in Texas. So we're behind the national average in both cases. How come? I, I'm used to Texas being first and best, or at least wanting to be, first and best at everything. We're near the bottom of the state rankings and the percentage of our population vaccinated. You, you know that. So how come we're behind and does that matter? So as a state, we were the first state that actually hit 1 million doses administered, you know, really early on. But that's and a I raw number, Commissioner. I'm talking about the percentage. Yes. So when you look at the percentages, obviously our populations are a lot bigger we have a lot more physical space between us right. um, than comparing us to that of, you know, New Hampshire or Vermont or, uh, you know, Rhode Island type of things. Um, we have had a lot more vaccine that we have needed to push through a lot of different providers. And at the end of the day, you know, I like being number one too, but the importance of it is, is that we go with deliberate speed to vaccinate as many people as we physically can every single day. Do you think we're doing enough? I would challenge that we're never doing enough. We can always do better. You know, one of the things that we constantly talk about in our expert panel is, do we do we change things? You know, how do we improve on all the hard work that's being done? Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you should never rest on your laurels no matter how well you've done. And I think we've done a very good job at, at vaccinating for the size of the state that we have. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue to push and, and do better each and every time. How much are you talking in your meetings about the other states? How much are you focused on what they're doing and how much are you just focused on what you're doing? Because there are two ways to look at this, right? One is how are we compared to other people? The other way to look at it is we don't care what other people are doing. We're just focused on us. So which is it in those vaccine allocation needs? So I think we look at what is happening in other states, not necessarily to grade ourselves, but 
you know, where they have good ideas that we should be trying um, and considering and implementing. We yeah. don't want to try to reinvent the wheel. We want to learn from things that have worked well in other states. But at the end of the day, we know the populations that we're dealing with. We're the ones that are working with the local officials um, and really talking with our communities. So every state is unique and different and has their own challenges. And we have to really be focused on what's happening here. We don't want to get distracted by the noise around us, but where they do have lessons or good ideas, we want to try and implement those. Is there a state that you're watching in particular that you think has done it well? So, you know, we try to look at states that are large in number and have, you know, diversity um, as well, yeah. because trying to compare us to, you know, Montana uh, may not be the best uh, place for us to look. So where we look at the timing, you know, and eligibility is important, where we look at how they engage, you know, unique populations. Um, now, we may take snippets from different communities, but we have not tried to follow suit of any one state. We're really, you know, um, on our own path. Uh, Commissioner, is herd immunity the goal, as everybody says? If, if it is, that would be, as we understand it, 75 to 90 percent of the population of the state vaccinated, which is a lot. Is that really what you're striving for here? So we want to reach you can quote herd immunity as quickly as we can um, for as long as we can. I think part of the challenge is that we don't know how long natural immunity lasts. Um, and, you know, there's still more information and data coming about how long the vaccinations last. Yeah. And so it's not a static point in time that, hey, we hit it, we're done, we don't need to do anything else. And I think that that is um, where we need to, you know, be mindful that, the virus continues to evolve and change. And even though we may hit it at a certain point, you know, the variants are a game changer. And so, you know, we may need to continue to work towards that um, as we move along. So it is a goal, but I don't want it to sound like it's a specific endpoint. Would you confirm those 75 to 90% is the target range we're looking at here? Is that right? So that's what the literature has shown, you know, depending on uh, different assumptions. Yeah. How long will it take to get there? How long will it take to vaccinate everybody we need to vaccinate so, so that you're comfortable saying we finally hit it? <laughs> I don't know that I'll ever be comfortable with that. <laughs> um, okay. You know, I think we are pushing hard to vaccinate adults as much as we can, as quickly yeah. as we can. Um, you know, a new game changer will be, you know, if the Pfizer emergency use authorization amendment happens, you know, for the adolescents. Um, but right now we really need to focus on the adults. So our charge to um, our providers all across the state is to use every dose they have within the one week that they have it and really, you know, telling them to charge ahead. Um, now, when we hit that magic number, I don't know. Um, that will continue to evolve depending on, you know, waxing and waning immunity. Now, you, you know, that the governor last week uh, said here, here, in fact, I'll quote the governor's uh, own words. When you look at the senior population, more than 70 percent of our seniors have received a vaccine shot. More than 50 percent of those who are 50 to 65 have received a vaccine shot. I don't know what herd immunity is, but when you add that to the people who have immunity, it looks like it could be very close to herd immunity. He was taken by people as saying that we're close, but that's not right, is it? We're not actually close, Commissioner, are we? So the, the numbers that he was quoting on our seniors, you know, are absolutely true. 
I think the the challenge with herd immunity um, and particularly with COVID-19 is that those numbers are going to fluctuate as far as, you know, the waxing and waning of natural immunity. We don't know how long uh, vaccine immunity will last. And so um, I know, you know, we get asked just general questions about herd immunity a lot and we still don't know yet. I guess I'm just asking, are we close? Yes or no? Do you, would you define us as close to herd immunity? And I would say that, you know, the science is still out there. We're working hard to try to hit it as close as we can and yeah. we're working through it. Yeah. Um, in retrospect, what's the biggest mistake we've made in the course of our attempting to get people vaccinated? Is there one thing you'd like to have back knowing what you know now? You know, I, I wonder about that every day. Um, I think looking back on things, um, we could have really done more education and um, communication with uh, our uh, local leaders earlier on, really to set the stage as far as, you know, what to expect and um, how, you know, what would we need from them? What would we ask of them? Um, we've, we've done a lot and I know that once the ball really got rolling, you know, we were engaging and talking about it and talking with them, you know, extensively, but I think we could have really benefited from a, a longer runway up front just to have more of a conversation early on. You, you know, everything becomes political these days and the, the state versus the local officials is one political uh, third rail, right? And the state versus the federal government is another one. I mean, I wonder if if the relationship between the state and the federal government is one that you would think about differently also in retrospect. Should we have done things differently in terms of the how we deal with the feds? So we talk with CDC every single day. You know, they are one of our key partners, um, pandemic or not. Yeah. And we have really strong relationships with them um, and continue to work well with them. I think you know, politics comes in play, particularly with the transition of the presidents, in that we had to have the same conversation, you know, multiple times. So, right. uh, you know, when the Trump's team was in, we would share information and explain, you know, what one data set was or, you know, what was happening. And then, you know, one day they were gone. And the next day we had a whole new team of people that we needed to talk to and have the whole right. same conversation all over again. Um, you know, but that's, there's nothing that you can really change about that. It was something that needed to happen. And the important thing is, is that we make sure that we communicate what is happening here in Texas each and every day so that our, um, you know, partners at the federal and at the local level know what we're dealing with. You know, the assumption, Commissioner, is that politics get in the way of this stuff. There was a rumor for a while that the uh, state was uh, offering more vaccine doses to red communities or red counties than blue ones. And the inverse has been true. There's a rumor that the federal government is sending more vaccine doses to states that voted for Joe Biden than not. Are you aware of any way in which politics in, in anything like I just described is going on? Because to me, that seems a little bit more like a conspiracy theory. It may be fun to talk about it, but it's not proven from what I can tell. No, I would say it's not proven. And every conversation that I have had about vaccine allocations has not shown that in any way, shape or form. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the process has been really trying to use data to drive things. Um, while we live in a political environment, I don't feel like the numbers were being skewed one way or the other with any intention of that in any way, shape or form. Yeah. 
Do you think we handled the eligibility rollout properly? I'm, I'm noting that today, April 19th, was the day the White House said we want all the states to open up eligibility to all adults. And in fact, we now have got all 50 states have expanded eligibility so that 18 and older can get the vaccine. I mean, in fairness, we did this three weeks ago, right? We did it on the 29th of March. Uh, the issue was, and I guess still is, do we have enough doses for everybody who's eligible? So one question is, you know, did we create an expectation in people by making everybody eligible that there would be doses available? I guess more generally, I want to ask you if you thought, if you think that we handled the, the rollout of eligibility the way we would have, should have, knowing what you know now. So one thing I can say confidently is that the expert vaccine allocation panel you know, took every decision along the way very, very seriously when we were talking about, you know, who was the next eligible group and then, you know, in the timing of that because of how, you know, significant an impact is as who, you know, is eligible to get a vaccine. And at the end of the day, you know, we were one of the first states that went away from the ASIP recommendations on yeah. the 1B population. Yeah. And when we looked at the data now, you know, for our seniors, the hospitalizations have declined significantly, the deaths have declined significantly. And so I feel very good looking at the data and knowing that at the end of the day, Texas chose the right path, you know, for our eligible populations. Yeah. Here of recently, you know, I think it, things have changed, you know, in the world of vaccine, everything continues to evolve very quickly. And what we know now is that what Texans are, are wanting now is the accessibility, the ease of it, you know, not necessarily, you know, wanting to, you know, go stand in line, um, you know, at a big mega site for uh, vaccination efforts. And so we need to pivot and, you know, make sure that vaccine is more easily available just in your normal happenstance as you go about life. Yeah. Well, in fact, I know you've said there's an ongoing conversation about the best strategy for allocating doses going forward. That's another area that we judge our success, right? And I think on the rankings, we're 31st among the states in the percentage of distributed vaccines administered. I mean, I guess, again, I'll ask you, should we be better at that? Um, is there more we could be doing or should be doing knowing what you know now in terms of how we're getting needles into arms? So what we do know is that there, I firmly believe that we have more shots in arms than what um, we have reported to us. And we have been working proactively with some of our providers. Um, some of them are behind on data entry. And yeah. you know, we are sending uh, the Texas military department out to help them, you know, get that data in so we can reflect what's going on. Um, we know so you think the data, just so I'm clear, Commissioner, you think the data that we have may not be accurately reflecting the success we've had at this? I think it is um, solid, but we know that there are doses that have been administered that are not fully in our system yet. Yeah, interesting. Is it about the providers, the kinds of providers? Is that really about the, the success or lack of success or less success we've had with allocating? I, I want you to talk about the mass vaccination sites, the hubs for one thing. Has that worked? Has that strategy worked? Then I want to come to the smaller providers. What do sure. you think about the mass sites? So our hubs have done exceptionally well. You know, I think it was week five or six when we actually first, you know, kicked that off um, in mid-January or so. Now, 
at that time, you know, we had very little vaccine and we knew we need to vaccinate large numbers of people quickly in order to help, you know, um, fight the virus back. And they were very successful in doing that. Um, the, you know, the trade-off for being a hub, you know, getting that reoccurring allocation, but also being sure that you, you know, were open to vaccinating people in, in other, you know, counties, that uh, you've reported timely, that, you know, you partnered um, with other providers and really, you know, trying to have um, a big impact in your community. They were successful and, you know, they knocked it out of the park. They got us some big numbers really, really quickly and, you know, have continued to really push um, to do more and more every single day. I think, you know, the important thing about realizing where you are is as more vaccine supply increases, you need to have more access points on top of that and you make it easier for folks to be able to get vaccinated. Yeah. And now the momentum may be moving a little bit away from those mass sites, right? I mean, you, you point out that more small yes. providers like pharmacies and doctor's offices are getting vaccines. So that's a good opportunity for people who've been hanging back to go look, look for doses. What, what was keeping these pharmacies and doctor's offices from getting vaccines all along? Whose decision was it to prioritize the larger sites? So if you look back at the allocation data in late December, in the first couple of weeks, you know, we had allocated to um, more pharmacies and private practices early on. Um, but what we notice is that uh, they were not going as quickly and putting up the numbers and doses administered as yeah. what we were needing to be able to see. And, you know, early on during that time, we were also being told with our federal partners that, you know, allocations were going to be dependent on, you know, doses administered. And so if those doses were sitting, um, you know, it could potentially jeopardize, you know, future allocations you know, a lot of private practices are not open on the weekends. They're so this was a, it was a process issue, right? It's a process issue, as simple as that. They just couldn't do as much business. They couldn't do it as quickly as possible as those big numbers that we were really trying to hit. And so at that point, we did share that information with the expert vaccine allocation panel and sh sharing what we were seeing as far as the data. And at that point, it was decided for us to go away from the, uh, the smaller types of providers for some time until we could really get a larger chunk of our population vaccinated. So what changed? So if, if you're now uh, uh, providing more doses to pharmacies and doctor's offices, are they any better equipped to, to do the business that you need them to do now? So, yes, we've done a lot of provider um, outreach and engagement um, yeah. on the expectations of only ordering what you can use in a week, um, that the reporting requirements, um, you know, need to be within 24 hours, need to be submitted to us. And so, you know, where they may have had challenges early on, you know, being able to work through those um, reporting challenges over the past couple of weeks has really helped to get them in prime status to be yeah. able to use and report timely. Why do you think that we have seen such racial disparities in vaccine access, Commissioner? This continues to be a problem. Um, there seem to be racial disparities a, 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 along every issue line, but in this case in particular, it seems like that uh, communities of color are not getting access to the vaccine as quickly as the rest of us do. What, what can you tell me about that? So we have been doing a lot of review of our data and local engagement and talking with our providers on the ground about, you know, what is happening, what are they seeing, um, you know, what are they doing differently and what is the data really telling us? 
Um, in early February, we did a technical change because we knew that the race ethnicity data was not um, coming through. We had a substantial chunk of data that was missing or unknown. And that really you know, skewed our visibility to be able to see what was really happening. So since that technical change, and um, that was on February 3rd, so since the data on February 4th and to current, the race and ethnicity mix is much more aligned with that of the total eligible population. Mm -hmm. um, for instance, you know, Hispanics um, are about 36% of the Texas population that are 16 and above. Uh, we have vaccinated 32% um, of those are reporting as Hispanic right now. Now, we do know that there's still more work to be done, um, you know, particularly within our um, African-American population. Yeah. We know that, um, you know, we're continuing to do more outreach and doing targeted uh, community engagement. Some of our media campaigns that are really kicking into high gear this month um, you'll start to see some of that. We have um, physicians of color, you know, talking um, with us about the importance of vaccination and really, frankly, addressing, you know, what concerns that they may have about being vaccinated and, and highlighting the reasons um, for them to consider receiving the vaccine. So we're doing a lot more on the communication front um, in order to address some of the disparities we're yep. talking with our providers, you know, how differently do they need um, the, the types of vaccine. So, you know, a lot of them will say, well, we really prefer not to deal with Pfizer if we have to go into the communities um, because of just the having to add saline as an additional step. Um, you know, the, the storage and handling piece, you know, can be hard for having to keep that temperature. So, you know, we try to address by offering a variety of different things. Um, but we are actually also, this is one of the things I'm really proud of, we'll be pushing out um, up to $10 million um, in the next, uh, here shortly, for community-based organizations to apply to help get the word out and improve um, vaccine uh, uptake in communities of color and other vulnerable populations all across the state. And so I'm really excited about that. I think it really shows that you know, the state is uh, putting the money where our mouth is in how deliberate we want to be with it. Yeah. Are you also concerned about uh, rural communities? There's also been some conversation around whether rural communities are getting access to, to the vaccine, uh, uh, to vaccine doses enough. Uh, are, are you seeing disparities there and are you focused on that as well? So absolutely, yes. Um, you know, one of the things that we look at the data, every EVAP meeting, every Monday morning, we look at race and ethnicity data, and we look at rural urban uh, data in comparison as well, and review what's happening, what are we seeing, what are we hearing, and then talking through about, you know, new strategies that we may need to yep. employ in order to be able to reach, you know, the rural uh, communities as well. Are you concerned that the rural numbers are not where they should be? Yes, we continue to try to push more vaccine in those um, directly to the providers. Now, you know, here of late, we haven't had a lot of requests from providers um, wanting more vaccine, but that doesn't mean that they're not getting it. And so we are allocating a significant chunk of our vaccine to the Texas military teams. And for several weeks now, um, you know, they have been going out and having a strong presence um, offering um, vaccine services in a lot of our rural communities. 
We also have our DSHS public health regions that are, you know, their whole mission is really doing that on the rural side. Yep. And, you know, hearing the stories of kind of the unique scenarios that play out in, in small town Texas um, are, are very profound, you know, and um, it's important for us to stay diligent about making sure that they have access to vaccines. Uh, let me come back around here at the end to the question we touched on at the beginning, and that is vaccine hesitancy or outright vaccine refusal. You know, here we are in April. Uh, we're 13 months into this pandemic. Everybody's sick of it. Everybody wants it to be over, stipulated. In February, the Tribune, in its polling with the University of Texas, asked, will you get a COVID-19 vaccine when it's available? 28% of Texans said no. Um, two polls last week, one from Monmouth, this is national, one, the other from Quinnipiac put the number of Republicans who don't plan on getting vaccinated in the mid 40s. One in five white respondents, one in five respondents of color said no. One in four under 65 in both polls said no. So we're still looking at a high percentage of different segments of the population who are simply not going to get the vaccine. So I want to ask you, what do you say to those people um, who, who insist that their liberty or their personal agency over these choices is the top priority and don't want to be told what to do, don't want to be restricted in their personal choices in any way. So what we know about vaccine is that it's personal. You know, just the way that, you know, how you receive your general health care is personal. And what, um, you know, a lot of the research has shown, and we've done some of our own, um, you know, surveys as well, for uh, different Texas populations is that it's really personal. And in that, you know, who, what, what message really resonates with them? It's when they hear from their personal doctors, it's when they hear from their own friends, it's when they hear from their own clergy about the importance and the safety of the vaccines. And so, you know, it may not be a state level, you know, bureaucrat that is gonna be what carries the message, at the end of the day, and this is where, you know, how we allocate us getting into more private practices, us getting into the local pharmacies, us partnering with the faith-based communities to have vaccine events there at the churches themselves are really fundamentally important um, because it is what is personal to them. And to have your local leaders, your local friends, your local churches be part of that engagement in that conversation um, in order for us to help increase uh, vaccine uptake in some of our more hesitant communities. So you don't think that we have a, a case to make as a state that the more people who get the vaccine, the more we can come back, the economy can come back, normal life can come back, and that people have to somehow think about the larger good here. You don't think there's a case for the state to make? We should leave this to everybody personally. No, that's not what I'm saying. Um, absolutely, you know, our vaccination efforts are really critical to us have, going back to the life that all of us remember and the ones that we want to have again, you know, to be able to engage with everyone as we used to. And we will continue to message that, you know, that is part of it, that is important. But, you know, the same message doesn't work with everyone. And that's where you have to have a multi-prong approach in order to make sure you can cover all your bases. And so you're gonna to continue to hear us say that. You'll notice that in some of our media campaigns, that is the very message that we're conveying about getting back to normal. 
but we're not going to rely on that one single message to turn the tide for everyone because we know it's not going to work you know unilaterally and so we are doing this other effort on the side because at the end of the day every new person we get vaccinated is a step in the right direction and we can't just say oh well we're never going to get to them we shouldn't even have a conversation that's not helpful. We need to really try to engage them in a meaningful way that they're willing to hear the message. You've been listening to Point of Order, a proud member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guest, Imelda Garcia, and thanks to the sponsors of this episode, Humana, the Texas Hospital Association, the Texas Association of Nurse Anesthetists, CVS Health, and Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Be sure to check out the Tribune's deep coverage of the 87th legislative session at texastribune.org. And if you like what you see there or hear here, tell your friends about us. Until next time, I'm Evan Smith.